Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Library, and if you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I'm reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. So yesterday was the last Sunday of the month, and of the year for that matter, but the relevant point was the Sunday. So it was time for another president yesterday, of course, the ongoing kitchen remodel, which is very nearing completion took up more time than I planned. I didn't get to record yesterday, coupled out with my gunsmithing. So everything's just a little bit behind. I'm working on catching up and being more consistent with that. But for now, we're posting this week's or last week's book a day late, Coolidge by Amity Schles. Our next president, the 30th, actually. The accompanying cocktail is called El Presidente. It is, and I, I did this in milliliters because the recipe was a lot easier to read that way. Uh, 15 milliliters of gold rum, 30 ml of dry vermouth, 10 ml of orange liqueur, 2.5 ml of grenadine, and two drops of saline solution. The saline solution, again, just for everybody's safety and health, is not like Visine. It's, you know, homemade. I took one teaspoon of salt, four teaspoons of water, mixed it all together, homemade saline solution that's safe to consume in small dropperfuls. So let's do this. John Calvin Coolidge Jr. was born July 4th, 1872 in Plymouth Notch, Vermont to John Calvin J Coolidge Sr. and Victoria Josephine Moore Coolidge. Now his mother died when he was 12 and his younger sister Abigail died when he was 18. Uh, Coolidge himself was not the healthiest of kids and they briefly thought that he might have also had tuberculosis which they think is what killed his mother. Uh, but ultimately it was just he was a small guy. I, mean, he, I think he topped out at like 5'8". About average height, right? Even for today that's about average height. But still he, he was a he, he wasn't like a stocky build even though he certainly had the wiry strength of a farmer's son because that's exactly what he was, a farmer's son. Get my rum into here. Now, he was healthy enough though that when he finished high school, the grade school, grammar school, and all of that, they had to decide where he was going to go to college, and ultimately settled on Amherst College in Massachusetts, which was you know just across the border from Vermont, basically. Now, from his earliest time, Coolidge was a shy, quiet kid. So, in addition to not being like the biggest kid on the block, he was he was shy and he was quiet, which did not serve him well going into his initial time in college. As others of his classmates, even in the freshman year, found fraternities to join, Coolidge was left out, becoming uh, what was called an Uden, meaning nothing. He was nothing for the first three years of his college career. He, he almost didn't make it past his first semester, but Coolidge insisted, Coolidge Sr., insisted that he see it through. And once he finished that first year, he was, Calvin was uh, comfortable enough to return to uh, to finish his coursework basically but he seriously almost dropped out and his dad's like nope you started it you're going to finish it because that's what good parents do and uh, he did and he, he finished quite well I mean he wasn't necessarily top of his class but he did ultimately end up making some friends and uh, his senior year was invited to join a fraternity which I did put in here it was hold on Phi Delta Gamma so that was the fraternity he ended up joining and Amherst was formative for him for multiple reasons. I mean, he, he first off, he found his voice. Now, again, he was still a quiet kid. He was the sort who would sit back and let others do the talking while he listened in and learned everything he could from them, which is kind of how I do things myself, so I can really appreciate that. But while he was there, he formed many lifelong friendships, not just with his fraternity. He, he formed a friendship with at least one student. I can't remember his name, but certainly in the book who was invited to join a fraternity their junior year and said, well, no, if you're not going to invite Calvin, I don't want to join because those are the sort of friends that Calvin made was people who would stand by him through thick and thin, even through his own rejections. 
and uh, eventually the two of them, the, their senior year, joined that Phi Delta Gamma. So he, he made foreign lifelong friend, friendships. Throughout his career, he would routinely help out Amherst men whenever he could. And then he took a philosophy class with Charles Edward Garman, who exhorted his students to join the stream of life through service, not just observe it from the sidelines. And it was that last one that really launched Coolidge on his path. I need 10 milliliters of this. Now, after finishing college, uh, Coolidge had to figure out his next steps in life. And he sort of determined to study law, and he really wanted to go to law school, especially at Harvard, because that was the up-and-coming premier law school of the day. But uh, the expenses kind of determined him to go the old-fashioned route, which was to study with a lawyer. And he set himself the goal of, like, if he's going to do it, if he's going to study law, and he's going to do it the old-fashioned way rather than at law school. And he had come to really enjoy the college experience, which is why he wanted to go to Harvard. But his family was always very thrifty, and so when his dad and him sat down, crunched the numbers, they were like, mm, no, let's get you that internship and you can go study with the lawyers. And he did, but he decided he wanted to uh, become a lawyer in two years instead of the average standard three, and that he wanted to get married at some point. Now, he became a lawyer in 1897, and in 1903, he met Grace Anna Goodhue, and they courted for about two years, and they married October 5th, 1905. Now, she was... I want to say the first first lady to have a college degree or an advanced degree or something like that. No, because she, she can't have been the first one because I know at least one other president. Wasn't Cleveland? I don't remember. There, there was at least one other where he met his wife like at college, so that's not quite accurate. But she was still, she, she was a formative influence on his life and she was the exact opposite. So where he was very shy, she was the outgoing one. She's the extrovert who adopted him and made him go out and be public, you know, be sociable. Introverts hate that, just FYI, but we seem to find ourselves constantly married to, uh, married to extroverts. Just, just happens. I'm not sure how that happens, but it happens. And that's what happened to Coolidge. He married himself an extrovert. She was an absolutely lovely woman. Everybody seemed to think that he had married well above his, uh, two drops of saline, well above his pay grade when he married her. And he agreed, but was happy for it anyways. And the two of them had uh, two children. We had John born in 1906 and Calvin Jr. born in 1908. Let me stir this up. From the time Coolidge finished his clerkship and opened his own practice, he became involved in local politics. Uh, he moved up the ranks of the local Republican Party, becoming known as a man who could win votes, but not in the usual way. Like usually vote winning was done by joining social clubs. Coolidge was not a social guy. The social clubs was not his jam. So he earned votes through one-on-one -on -one conversations goods and good service, like really good service. He took his philosophy instructor's words to heart and believed in giving that good service, which earned him loyalty. Additionally, he earned a reputation as one whose silence masked an excellent mind, and when he did speak, he used a minimal amount of words, and uh, he was right. Like basically always right. Like if he said something, you could take it to the bank. And not just like, hey, I promise this, but his read of a situation and the law was always spot on. Now through his skills as an orator, his persistent and excellent service and knowledge of law, and he was a skilled orator. I feel like I missed, left that out while I was mixing the cocktail. I did. When his, his junior and senior years in college, he had, he had joined debate clubs. He, he wanted to learn how to be more of a pu effective public speaker. Uh, he, he kind of had an eye on politics then, and he became a very skilled orator, and he learned that he could um, 
bring attention to himself by making people laugh and not in the class clown sort of way, but through a dry turn of phrase at just the right moment. So his timing was spot on and it made people like him. And those orators, his excellent service, the knowledge of uh, law, Coolidge eventually became the governor of Massachusetts, in which capacity he was serving in 1919 when the Boston Police Department staged a union walkout. Now, Coolidge, in the intervening years and through his service, had also earned a reputation as an excellent negotiator and one who just was superb at finding the middle ground and compromise between two opposing viewpoints. So when BPD walked out en masse, the nation watched with bated breath, waiting to see how Coolidge would react and what middle ground he would find. Ooh. God, I would not have thought the vermouth would be so overpowering on this one, but you can really taste the vermouth. And it's not... It's not terrible, but it's it's not awesome either. It's I'll probably end up pounding it to finish it and not waste the liquor, but it's okay. Now how he reacted was not what anybody was expecting. See when the when the police striked striked? Strike? Stroke. I don't even know. What's the plural of that in that case? Or the, the correct what's the correct verbiage? When the police went on strike I'm just going to make it easy on myself. When the police went on strike, <laughs> um, there were mass riots, all right, because, hey, the cops aren't going to show up. We might as well go ahead and riot, smash the windows, looting, burning, deaths, rapes. All of this happened because that's what happens when riots occur and the police don't respond. And Coolidge, whose knowledge of the law was well known and acknowledged to be far superior, determined that the police had no right to strike to the detriment of public safety. And that uh, viewpoint, incidentally, has been held ever since. Uh, and Ben read is the absolute correct interpretation. When you become a police officer, you have no right to strike. When the government goes through its, you know, periodic shutdowns for lack of funding, you know, the officers who serve in federal prisons, they still have to show up. They're just not getting paid for their time. But if they don't show up, they won't get a severance package. They'll be ineligible for rehire like bad things happen. They have no right to not show up and do their job, even though they're not getting paid for it. So that, incidentally, is an interesting risk you take when agreeing to work for the federal agencies. It's part of the reason I'm a contractor. I still get paid. Having determined that the police had no right to strike to the detriment of public safety, he fired the entire police force, every single one of them used the National Guard to restore order while new officers were hired. And, and he had no pity on the officers who came back afterwards trying to get their jobs back. I mean, he, he, he pitied them insofar as he assisted them in finding work where he could, but not as police officers. He would not let them return to the public force. Um, and this unflinching, unblinking reaction in the interest of the people of Massachusetts as a whole, not just for one special interest group, aka the police force, brought him to national attention. And his name, among certain groups, started being floated for president, not vice president. But Coolidge wasn't actually looking for such a spotlight because he's an introvert, right? He didn't want to be the guy center in attention. Uh, and when he was offered VP by Warren G. Harding, he gladly accepted and was flattered when he was invited to sit in on cabinet meetings and see how things were run. And he silently sat in cabinet meetings, paying attention to everything that was said to all the departments, um, especially interested in the Secretary of Treasury, Andrew Mellon, and agreed with Harding that the budget needed to be brought under control as quickly as possible. Everything was running just rampant. Inflation was rampant. The, the 
national debt was rampant, our surplus was gone, I mean, our economy was absolute shit at the end of World War I. And Harding, when he hired Mellon on to be Secretary of Treasury, and when he insisted on a budget act that would allow, uh, a, a, not a Secretary of the Budget, a, a Department of the Budget to be made, he insisted on those things as part of his call for a return to normalcy. And Coolidge agreed with that. He, he and Harding worked quite well together in that capacity. And uh, when Harding died on August 2nd, 1923, Coolidge knew that the best way forward was to ensure that nothing changed while he took the helm. So when he received word that Harding had died, he was visiting his father, and his father, who was both a public notary and a justice of the peace, actually swore him in in front of a group of gathered reporters. Uh, I want to say he was probably the first president to be sworn in by his own father. That must have been an absolutely surreal experience for the both of them. But then because he wanted things to stay as regular as possible to cause the least amount of disruption to the nation, he kept Harding's cabinet exactly the same throughout the rest of Harding's term. And while he had been learning from the cabinet meetings and listening to everything Mellon said, he also knew he needed to learn more because now he was the guy in charge. So he set up weekly meetings with the director of the Bureau of Budget, Herbert Mayhew Lord. And he kept those meetings up through the rest of Harding's term and throughout his own term from March 4th, 1925 till he stepped down on March 4th, 1929. And I, sometimes they were more than weekly too because he really wanted to stay on top of that budget. He knew just how critical that was to the nation's health and well-being. So he spent his entire four years learning intensely about budgeting a national economy and high finance. And this went hand in hand with his own tendency towards a tight budget. Remember, he ended up studying law the old-fashioned way rather than going to law school because of budgetary concerns, right? They knew it would cost more and they didn't want to take out loans for education. So he studied the old-fashioned way. Incidentally, there are still a couple of states where you can do that. California, interestingly enough, is one of them, where if you want to be a lawyer, you can, in fact, rather than going to law school, study with a qualified law office. I think Kim Kardashian is actually doing that, which is really fascinating to me. Over his four years of his own presidency, Coolidge learned to make pennies scream for mercy. And he was known as a very tight-fisted man. Not without mercy. I mean, he was generous with his own money, but never with the, with the people's money, basically. Uh, he and Lord got government agencies to cut their spending and then cut again. And additionally, Coolidge had immediate proof that Mellon's tax plan of slashing rates worked. Uh, tax revenues in 1923 were $1,691,089,534.56. Just one year later, tax revenues were up $2 million. They, they came in at $1,841,759,000. So it turns out Mellon was absolutely 100% right. If you leave people more of their own money to spend, they'll spend it. And tax revenues poured into the budget. We ended up with surpluses from the first year of Harding's administration all through Coolidge's administration. Surpluses every year. And of course, the uh, different secretaries were really keen to spend it, especially Hoover, when uh, there was flooding in the Mississippi. And we'll come back to that in just a little bit. But as Lord and Mellon pointed out, the budget was basically a fraction. Uh, the government expenditures as the numerator and commerce as the denominator. As long as the commerce was allowed to blossom unfettered by government regulations, then it could outpace government spending. But only if the government actually reigned in its own spending. How often does that happen? And so to that effect, Coolidge and Lord encouraged all government agencies to slash their own spending 
offering incentives to cut spending by 2% then cut it more. And Coolidge didn't just talk the talk. He insisted that the White House budget and live within a set finance. Like he, he, he gave the housekeeper a budget and said, this is what I need you to keep your spending to. And when the head housekeeper failed to fall in line with his, with his thinking and basically pushed back, it was like, no, no, you can't do this. It's all about, we must, we must show the world we can set a good table. He replaced her with someone who would budget as he demanded. And she managed to set just a fine table for like the King of England and dignitaries who came from all over the world. He managed to set just fine a table on a limited budget. And with prohibition in effect. So on June 30th, 1924, Coolidge's younger son, Calvin Jr. Well, um, boy, that was, an, that was a clunky transition, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I got nothing to say to that. On June 30th, 1924, Coolidge's younger son, Calvin Jr., was playing tennis on the White House lawn and he developed a blister. He, he hadn't put any socks on, he was just playing tennis. This in turn became infected to the point that the infection turned to blood poisoning, which resulted in Calvin's death within a week. The nation mourned with the Coolidge's. The, the two boys, Calvin Jr. and John, were celebrities in their day, all right? They were the sons of the president, and, and the people love the first family, all right? Even if they don't particularly care for the president, they tend to love the first family regardless of who it is. And so the nation mourned solidly with Calvin and Grace, and uh, the two of them never quite recovered. I mean, Grace already was already an animal lover, but she just basically started adopting all the animals, which to be fair, I think if you're the first lady and you have the ability to adopt a raccoon named Rebecca, you're probably going to take that chance, which is what she did. And lots of dogs and cats. Um, her love for animals became so well known that um, one of the African nations, I think it was South Africa directly, but I, I could be mistaken, but they sent her two lion cubs as, like, as a gift. And Coolidge was like, oh, this is lovely. They're going to go live in the zoo and be happy zoo lions because, well, he had to draw the line somewhere. And two lions with, you know, visiting dignitaries is not really a practical thing to have running around the White House. But as, as frequently happens when a child dies in a marriage, it, it becomes strained. It adds a strain. You know, it, both parents are absolutely heartbroken and both are going to mourn in their own way. Um, Grace mourned by adopting all the wildlife she possibly could. And Calvin mourned beca by becoming even more reserved and withdrawn. And now they never strained the marriage to the point of divorce, but being in the White House and having to publicly mourn added more of a strain than either of them was really comfortable with. And, and their marriage became a little distant while the, for during the rest of his term. Not, again, not so much they ever divorced, not so much they ever legally separated or anything like that, but it just, he, he became snappish because he was irritated and he was withdrawn, but he had nowhere to go because he's the president. He has to be around people all the time which is extremely irritating when you're an introvert and you just want to get away from people. And he had no choice. He's the president. He has to be in there. Now, the constant austerity measures, the death of their son, the sniping press, all of this weighed on Coolidge. And when they took their summer retreat in 1927 to South Dakota, and this is where Coolidge was actually the one who, who approved of and signed off on some of that budget surplus going into creating Mount Rushmore. And he was invited out to South Dakota to, to see not just Rushmore, that actually almost didn't happen, but just to see what South Dakota was like. And this made big waves in South Dakota. No president had ever really stopped there before. So he went there and they were, they were vacationing there. And Coolidge 
calls a press conference wherein he basically just handed out pieces of paper to all the newspapermen that read, I do not choose to run for president in 1928. Now, the entire nation thought this was a political fate and read the messages, I do not choose to run for president in 1928, and with the emphasis on choose like that. Now, read that way, it means that if Coolidge is nominated at the Republican convention, he would run again based on the people's choice. Right? It's not his choice, but the people chose him, he would absolutely run again. They placed the emphasis on the wrong word. Coolidge meant what he wrote, and the emphasis was on, I do not choose to run again. He had no intention of it, and he was announcing it to the world. This is, this is my one term, all right? I finished out Hardings. This is my one term. I'm not running again. This, I, I've had enough of this. Um, the problem with making that announcement in 1927, well ahead of the 28 presidential run or even presidential convention, is, is that um, it effectively made him a lame duck president with a year and a half left of his term. Congress stopped playing ball with him. The press started ripping him even harder, and Coolidge didn't really care. Right? He, he just wanted his final year in the White House. He, he wanted to make sure that he left the nation with a strong, balanced budget, with a surplus, and a strong foreign policy. And that last year, that's what he really did. He, he worked with Secretary of State Frank B. Kellogg in, drafting, in crafting and drafting the Kellogg-Briand Treaty, a.k.a. the Pact of Paris, a.k.a. the General Treaty for Renunciation of War as an Instrument of National Policy. Now, this was an international agreement in which the signing nations agreed not to use war to solve disputes. Obviously, that went right out the window a few years later when Hitler was nominated and made, what, Chancellor and Prime Minister of Germany, because he hadn't signed that pact. Not the topic of this book, but it was, it, it was an interesting step, especially given how Wilson's own desire with the Treaty of Versailles, the Treaty of Versailles kind of included similar verbiage, but that was rejected wholeheartedly. The Kellogg-Briand Pact was signed almost unanimously by the Senate. I, I think like it was 86 to 1 in favor of or something like that. So th this passed with tremendous popular appeal both with the Senate, people nationwide heard about it and they sent letters of support. Uh, Coolidge said he never saw any letters saying, no, let's not do this. Now, in addition to Germany and France, many smaller nations who were aware of their own vulnerabilities signed, which included Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia was feeling very threatened by the political machinations of Benito Mussolini in Italy and uh, had been reaching out to Coolidge, basically asking for some form of help. I mean, like the, like the Prince of Ethiopia, uh, Rastafari, literally, that's his name, um, sent a massive shield inlaid with like gold and ivory to from Ethiopia to Coolidge and uh, Coolidge sent back it wasn't a bible but it was something like it was something it was a book of some sort oh, it was a book of law it was a book of law I don't remember which one but it's in it is in the book it says which one it was it was basically a book of law saying you know and and the subtext of that was quite clear you know send me shields send me swords the law will always overrule and so he sent them a book of law in exchange. But the relations between Ethiopia and the United States stayed friendly, as did our relationship with Cuba. Um, Coolidge became the first president to visit Cuba. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt doesn't count because he was not president when he was there for the Spanish-American War. He was there as, as a, a what, general, colonel? I think he was a colonel. But uh, he went to visit Cuba, and they offered him an El Presidente cocktail, hence the choice of this week's cocktail, which he declined because prohibition was still in effect. He was not a man who believed that the rules applied to thee, but not to me. 
he he uh he was well aware that the rule, the law applied to everybody. Unlike Wilson and Harding, who both continued to drink even after prohibition was announced. Now, Coolidge learned many things from Mellon and Lord, including how to read the markets, but he combined this with his own political knowledge and made the statement to his Secret Service bodyguard, Edmund Starling, that, quote, well, they're going to elect that Superman Hoover and he's going to have some trouble. He's going to have to spend money, but he won't spend enough. Then the Democrats will come in and they'll spend money like water, but they don't know anything about money. And uh, by the time Hoover was sworn in on March 4th, 1929, Coolidge knew a market crash was coming. One of his own family quirks was to literally not put all their eggs in one basket, meaning the family savings were spread out over many banks in amounts of several hundred to several thousand dollars in individual accounts over more than 20 banks. This resulted in Coolidge's in the Coolidge's weathering the early years of the Great Depression quite well, as not all banks failed during this event. So the Coolidge's always had money to hand, and they were able to help out friends when needed. Now, additionally, post-presidential presidential retirement, he was offered a job writing a column for a paper, plus part of the proceeds from any syndication of that column. And his column syndicated widely, like nationwide. It was read everywhere. It was one of the most popular columns ever written. And this resulted in a consistent payday for Coolidge from 1930 to 1931. He only wrote for one year. Uh, but during that time, he earned a significant sum. It was like two or $3,000 per column plus the syndication royalties. And this is back in 1930s dollars, so before Franklin devalued the dollar by taking a, starting the slide off the gold standard. He didn't finish it. Nixon finished it. But it kept the family quite comfortable up until Coolidge's death at home on January 5th, 1933, just before Roosevelt was sworn into office. But his prediction was 100% accurate because Coolidge knew men and he knew how to read political currents. I admire his absolute integrity. I mean, he, he never insisted the nation do something that he himself was not willing to do. When the Mississippi caused massive flooding along her length, he knew that the federal government had no business doing anything, all right? And he even cited uh, Grover Cleveland's reaction to the dust storms back in the 1890s when he said, look, this is, this is a local matter. The local government needs to take care of this. This is not a federal matter. You know, my, my heart bleeds for these people, but the governors need to step up and take control and fix their own states. And... Uh, he left it alone and many called him out on that and said, Oh, this is bullshit. This is a federal matter. You know, people are bleeding. People are dying. You should do something about it. And when Vermont experienced its own flooding due to heavy rainfall, people thought for sure that he was going to step up and be a hypocrite and go and help Vermont, but he never did. And it hurt him to do that because those were his people, right? Not, I mean, technically he saw all of America as his people and he really did. He knew that he wasn't just, the president of Massachusetts and Vermont, he was the president of all the people, but he also knew he had to react fairly and equally to all the people. So when Vermont flooded, he had to sit back and do nothing and let Vermont fix itself, which it did quite handily, incidentally. He never cited a law that he was unwilling to follow himself, and he used pocket vetoes to tremendous effect. Uh, a pocket veto is when the, is all those, those rash of last minute laws that Congress and the Senate, you know, pass right before they break for the summer. And, uh, if the president doesn't sign it and doesn't reject it, it gets vetoed by default and there's no overturning that. They have to start from scratch. That's one of the beauties of the Constitution and the pocket veto was upheld by the Supreme Court not too long after Coolidge stepped down. And the only other president to use the pocket veto so well was Grover Cleveland. So Coolidge managed to affect a great deal of change by being just as tight and stingy like I said, he could make pennies sit up and scream. 
When he stepped up as VP in 1921, unemployment had been at 5.7 million Americans. When he left office in 29, unemployment was at 1.8 million. So there's a steep decline in unemployment. Manufacturing output, steel and iron production had all increased dramatically in the intervening eight years. National debt had decreased from $28 billion to $17.65 billion, meaning Coolidge's tax cuts and revenue acts had decreased national debt by one-third. Additionally, the budget had a surplus every year. National debt decreased, budget surplus. These are terms that are obsolete in today's political landscape. Yet just 100 years ago, Coolidge managed to, to, to do both and make it stick. For, for his entire reign. And, and he knew things were going to get bad. Like when, when the stock market crashed in 29, he knew that Hoover was going to lose his next term. He didn't know who to yet, but he knew that the Republicans were going to be out because Hoover did exactly what he said. He spent money, but not enough. Not enough to make a difference. Hoover also put out that uh, companies should not lower their wages at all to, to compensate for everything. So this, of course, resulted in more unemployment because that's what happens, right? If you are artificially forced to pay people a higher wage than they are worth, they're, they're going to be laid off because ultimately they don't actually have to keep hiring somebody and the true minimum wage is zero. Concepts which were not discussed at that time. I think that Coolidge was a remarkable man. I think he accomplished much in a very short time in office. I mean, reduction of national debt by one third is nothing to sneeze at. Leaving a budgetary surplus of multi-million dollars is nothing to sneeze at. Dropping unemployment, huge, right? These are things that we are struggling with today and our politicians are studying the wrong parts of the past to fix this. They're focusing on wrongs of the past that have already been corrected in multiple ways and just hammering that dead horse into bones and dust. He accomplished much when he was in office. He effectively predicted the Great Depression silently to himself, but he predicted it. Clearly not to himself because we wouldn't know that he had made such statements if they were entirely to himself. But he predicted the catastrophe that would be Roosevelt's response to depression, right? Democrats don't know money and so they just spend and spend and spend. I'm not quite sure where I'm ranking him yet. I mean, somewhere near the center top. I mean, he doesn't quite beat out Cleveland, but he, he did some impressive things while he was in office. And this book was quite good. Um, some of it took a bit to slog through, but that's partly also my own personal personal preference for shorter chapters, which does not impact the writing at all. It just makes it easier to find a decent stopping spot for the evening. Overall, Schlaes demonstrated a thorough knowledge of her subject matter and expressed the key points quite well. Um, I, I like this book. I think that, that Coolidge is another one of those grossly overlooked presidents. I somewhere I'm quite sure there's going to be copies of the column that he wrote and syndicated for a year and if I find them I'll probably read them because I th would like to know what the man thought. He was known for being very succinct. Um, during one of the inauguration dinners for Harding he was placed next to a lady and I don't remember her name but it is in the book and uh, she kind of joked with him, you know, I, I made a bet with, you know, some friends of mine that I could get you to say more than three words during this dinner and he just looked at her and said you lose. And uh, she might have been offended by that, but Grace was such an effective political spin master in her own right that she rebranded that as a charming anecdote for how Silent Cow handled a state dinner. <laughs> and uh, that's it for this week. If you like what you saw, don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you guys next Sunday. Bye.